0: We're going to start going through the book of Genesis, and I'm very excited about this. The book of Genesis is incredible. It's like standing atop of a mountain, and I suppose just looking out all you can see, because Genesis is obviously not just the first book of the Bible, it's the foundation of the Bible. In so many different ways. And you just get such a panorama of all of God's plan when we look at the book of Genesis. There's so much here. Uh, It's not just the the account of different individuals and so on. It really is the introduction to everything in God's word. What we're going to try and do this morning as we go through is just first of all ask the question, can we trust Genesis? You know, in in the world in which we live today, is this a book that we can read and actually give it some sort of credibility? So, we're gonna come back to that in just a moment. We're gonna then move on and have an introduction to the Bible, because of course Genesis is exactly that. And then... An introduction to this book itself, and then, Lord willing, we're going to get to the first verse, uh, which is uh, all we intend to do today. Now, my plan is, as we go through this, God willing, we're going to move through a a reasonable pace when we actually get going. Uh, But I just want to lay some foundations this morning and give some information that hopefully will be beneficial and helpful um, for the subsequent studies that we're going to go through. But we're not going to spend hours on each verse and things. Uh, we'll uh, we'll kind of move at a fairly rapid pace because we want to glean as much as we can, uh, and there's, there's plenty to be gleaned. So let's go back to that kind of first question then: Can we trust Genesis? You know, we, we're living in a day and an age where the world will tell us that what's in the book of Genesis is just mythology. You know, I got to speak to a very prominent. Christian speaker who heads up uh, various uh, evangelistic teams and has done all sorts of wonderful things in this country and has been on telly and all sorts of things and I actually got to speak to him because he had made some comment about schools that were teaching from the or teaching science and using genesis and saying that we can actually give genesis some credibility and he was saying it's effectively it's like child abuse because we're giving children this information and we're distorting their, their worldview and everything else. Now this was the comment. This was been, I think it was in the Times this comment had come out. And of course, you should always learn never to trust what the newspapers say. So I had the opportunity. I was actually at a, a Christian exhibition, uh, and this individual was there and I went up and I just challenged him. And I said, can I just ask? I said, because often what we hear in the papers is not true and we laughed a bit and, you know, I said, what was it you actually said? And he went on to tell me that basically what they reported was pretty much what he said. And he said, the thing is, he said Genesis, he said it was just Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. He was saying that that which we have in Genesis wasn't written until somewhere around 600 BC. And all they'd done is borrowed from other ideas from other cultures. And so we don't really have a, a a list or a detailed account of what God did in creation. It's purely just an idea to show that God is in complete control. That was his viewpoint. We had a conversation, and end of the way, I end up getting dragged away by by people who wanted to get this man out of the building. And um, you know, there's a lot of people that hold to those views, even within the church. So the question is, can we trust? Genesis, in terms of what it says regarding our origins. Well, let me ask you this. What are your options? Think about it. What choices do you actually have? If you really boil it down, you've only got two basic worldviews. You've either got the suggestion that everything is the result of a cosmic accident, or that we're the result of of a deliberate designer. Deliberate design by a deliberate designer. They're the only choices. You see, really, you've either got in the beginning God, which is where Genesis starts, or you've got in the beginning nothing. They're your choices. You tell me which one of those is credible and which one of those is a big leap of faith. You know, I can look around me, I can look out the window now, I can see design. Design tells me there has to be a designer. We can look at our own human bodies, we can look at symmetry, we can look at the complexity of a a cell and we see design beyond anything man has ever been able to replicate. And are we going to suggest that all of that came about as a result of nothing? It's interesting because if you look at ancient cultures, a lot of them attributed creation or the work of creation to various deities or um, powers or whatever. Well, of course, that's insulting to God. But even more insulting is this idea that we've come up with in the last 150 years or so, which suggests that actually you don't need anything. That nothing is all you need to start everything. You see, really... You've even got this amazing Big Bang that's made the world from nothing. And by the way, that's the humanist worldview. And man, of course, is therefore God and answers to no one. And that, by the way, is really the crux of the issue. Because man doesn't want to admit that he's accountable to a God. That there is rules and laws and there is judgment for our actions and consequences. The other, of course, again, is that we look at this incredible design, and therefore there must be a smart designer. And that is the position of Christians, the creationist worldview, that God is God and judges all men. It's interesting because other religions have their viewpoint. Muslims, a lot of Muslims actually believe that God really did create everything. Others get kind of swept up in this worldly evolution nonsense. But there's a, there's, a, there's a mishmash of ideas, and there's no real clarity. I remember some years ago, receiving when I was back in Deal, and we'd been sent, both my dad, who's passed back at the Calvary Chapel in Deal, and myself, we'd been sent these massive, big, thick books, very well printed and put together. They'd been done by a Muslim apologist, somebody who was trying to defend Islam. And they were really to show that, as far as they were concerned, Allah had created everything. And they used various arguments to show why some of the modern scientific theories are uh, fall short. But even then, they lacked clarity. Uh, The Quran doesn't give us the information that the Bible does. It doesn't give us the statements the Bible does about what God did, how God did it. Of course, the Jews believe the same effectively as we believe, because we have the same book, the book of Genesis. But other religions, there's no real clarity. There's all sorts of ideas and things that clearly are just fables. But what about Genesis? Can we take it seriously? Well again, let me just show you what the science would have us believe. This is just from a a school textbook. It says, how was the universe born and how will it end? Most astronomers believe that about 18 to 20 billion years ago, all the matter in the universe was concentrated into one very dense, very hot region that may have been much smaller than a periodist in American books, a a, a full stop on this page. And for some unknown reason, this region exploded. This explosion is called the Big Bang. You see, this is put forth as science. It's not science. It's belief. We'll come back to that in a moment. The idea is that this Big Bang then has sent matter out all around the universe and we've ended up with galaxies and then stars and as stars have called, bits have been flung off them and we have things like the Earth and the Moon and the planets in our solar system and so on which apparently have come off the Sun, so many would suggest Lots of uh, credible science to show that that's actually impossible. Another quote, this is from Scientific American. No comment on that in itself. but um, The observable universe could have evolved from an infinitesimal region. It's then tempting to go one step further and speculate that the entire universe evolved from literally nothing. I mean that's the viewpoint that many scientists today still hold that everything has come about from nothing and of course if you give it billions of years suddenly somehow that becomes credible but even a child knows that if you have nothing you can leave it as long as you want all you will end up with is nothing this um writer, very highly qualified, uh, It says this, if the universe is expanding, then it must have once been much smaller. Now, you need to be at least that intelligent to write these books. Uh, if you could run the life of the universe in reverse like a film, you would see the universe contracting until it disappeared in a flash of light, leaving nothing. And then he says, in the realm of the universe, nothing really means nothing. We have to applaud this individual. Not only matter and energy would disappear, but also space and time. However, physicists theorize that from this state of nothingness, the universe began in a gigantic explosion. And it goes on again, just talking about the Big Bang Theory. I mean, this is incredible because this is what people believe. And they look at us, and they look at the Bible, they look at Genesis, and they say, how can you believe that? And yet this is more akin with a fairy story, fairy story than than anything. Just a couple of uh, facts that probably you need to be aware of. Firstly, there is no universally accepted Big Bang theory. So when people talk about the Big Bang, if they ask, or if you get the opportunity to ask the question, ask them, which particular theory are you referring to? And they probably won't be able to answer that question. There are various hypotheses. By the way, that word is a lovely word, isn't it? Hypothesis. Hypothesis. It just means guesses. But when we say a hypothesis, it sounds so much better than, well, we don't really know, it's just a guess. So we wrap it up in fancy words and we call it a hypothesis and now apparently it has some sort of credibility. The Big Bang Theory is not and cannot be science for a very simple reason. Science demands observation using one or more of our five senses. So taste, touch, sight, smell and hearing. And it's got to be repeatable. You can't repeat the Big Bang. You know, there's all sorts of experiments that are done and we get all sorts of things, and particularly on the BBC every couple of weeks there's another snippet proving evolution. This time they've proven it. Well, what about last time? I thought you said that was proven last time. No, apparently not. You see, the Big Bang Theory is just a belief system about our origins, and therefore it is by definition a religion in itself. It's a belief. It's a belief about how we came to be with no actual evidence to support it, or underlie it. Richard Dawkins, I'm sure a name you're familiar with. He's sometimes referred to as the High Priest of Evolution. Of course, he champions the atheist agenda. He was being interviewed on Radio 2 some years ago, and he made these statements, and I wrote them down at the time, because I thought, this is great. He said, religion demands belief in the supernatural. And this was his reasons for dismissing religion. And I thought, that's brilliant, Richard. Because... Nothing exploding and becoming everything, I think you'll agree with me, is not a natural event. Therefore, the Big Bang, evolution, all these things have to be supernatural. Therefore, he's defining his own beliefs as religion. He went on and said, religion requires belief in things that cannot be verified by science. Well, once again, Mr. Dawkins, the whole idea of spontaneous generation of life, the formation of DNA, transitional forms, galaxies, stars, all of those things, can't be verified by science, the formation of those things. He went on and said, time the time has come for people of reason to say enough is enough. He says religious faith discourages independent thought. It's divisive and it's dangerous. Well, hear, hear because that's exactly what these theories are things like the big bang evolution they discourage independent thought they don't allow you to look at any other view or any other position some of you are aware that a few years ago I got into an email debate with Michael Gove who was then the education secretary as they were about to propose teaching of what well, they proposed and they're about to bring in the teaching of evolution to primary school children and I asked them what the basis was they were talking about they wanted this high quality science I said great I'm all for that but what science are you going to present I said can you give me one fact to support evolution and they couldn't they basically came back and they said oh, you know pretty much their minds were made up don't confuse us with facts we just which is what we're going to do and they, they the argument the only argument they really gave was that well this is what the majority of scientists believe well is that surprising when we have an education system when all that's taught is big bang and evolution and so on You know, if we got rid of all other political parties, the Conservative Party could quite legitimately claim that everybody was conservative. So the suggestion that well everybody believes in evolution is no surprise when that's the only thing that's presented. You know, but he went on to talk about biology and saying you know evolution is central to the study of biology. No, it's not no more than belief in aliens is central to the study of cosmology, or belief in Atlantis is central to the study of oceanography. You don't have to believe in evolution to be a biologist. In fact, most biologists I know don't believe in evolution because of the evidence. One quote from Wikipedia, and it's not necessarily the best source of information, but it's interesting because it does often present a picture of where people are. Or the majority of people. As just said, in astrophysics, the questions of galaxy formation and evolution are, and he went on to list, how from a homogeneous universe did we obtain the very inhomogeneous one we live in? Or what the, they're saying there is, how from a, a universe that should be fairly even, and fairly simple in, in complexity, have we ended up with this incredibly complex and diverse universe? How do galaxies form, they ask? And how do galaxies change over time? Uh, just These are just some of the questions they wrestle with. We'll I mean, just, just throw a few things out here. If the Big Bang were true, matter would be evenly distributed. But it's not. When you look out in space, it's lumpy. There's clusters of stars and great voids and so on. There are many, many issues and problems with the so-called Big Bang theory. Theories. Another quote said this. Speaking of galaxy formation, I love this. This is again from, from Wikipedia. There's a scientist that had made these comments. Uh, the earliest modern theory... Okay, so it's a theory of the formation of our galaxy describes a single um, relative, uh, relatively rapid monolithic collapse. Another view, so we started with a theory, now we've got another view, published in 1978 describes a more gradual process so either it happened quickly or it happened slowly let's leave our options open, isn't it? An, an even more recent idea is that significant portions of the stellar halo could be stellar debris from destroyed dwarf galaxies and globular clusters, lots of great words there but what does it mean? Giant elliptical galaxies are probably formed by, it, and it goes on. Do you, do you see a problem there? I mean, we've got a theory, we've got views, we've got ideas, we've got probabilities. This is put forward as science. He says, the quote at the end was great. He says, while we have learned a great deal about ours and other galaxies, the most fundamental questions about formation and evolution remain only tentatively answered. If you go to a dictionary to look up the word tentative, you'll find that it's not fully worked out, concluded or agreed on, provisional, all right, uh, or uncertain. It? That's the belief that they have. And people would then look at us and say, oh, you can't take Genesis seriously. Well, look, until they come up with something a little better than what they've got, I'm going to stick with Genesis. This was good as well. Star formation. They don't know how stars form. They've got various ideas, but it's, according to current theories, again, of star formation, and he goes on talking about stuff. I, I'm not going to read all this to bore you, but uh, the youngest and brightest stars we now see in the Orion Nebula are thought to be less than 300,000 years old, and the brightest may be. I mean, everything is guesswork. We're told that our sun apparently is losing 4 billion kilograms of mass a second. Not that that's a problem to us. At the moment, there's plenty there to go round. But then we're told that the sun has been in its current form for about 4.5 billion years. And will continue to be one for another 4.5 billion years. Of course, no explanation is given as to how the sun got there. What formed the sun? How did it get there in the first place? How did it get to be the right distance from the earth to support life on earth? And all these factors. Well, just to bring this section to a close, evolutionist Sir Arthur Keith, who wrote the forward to uh, Darwin's Origin of Species, said this, The conclusion I have come to is this, the law of Christ is incompatible with the law of evolution. Nay, the two laws are at war with each other. Now, that's a very honest response, because that really is the case. We have two opposing worldviews. The worldly perspective, as we've already seen, is very flawed. And you still need every bit as much faith to believe that. You just have to believe it all, that it could have happened without a God, without intelligence. But you still need faith. And it's interesting because you will find, sadly, Christians who will believe and go along with the idea that God has used the Big Bang and evolution as his mechanism of bringing life and bringing the world into being. And we'll go through, as we go through our study, and we'll see clearly that's not the case. just want to highlight this, that the Bible and evolution are very, very different. They're opposites. It was, according to the account in creation, death came only after Adam's sin. But in evolution, death came before man was even created, or in being. According to the biblical account, the earth was created before the sun, but according to the evolution, the Big Bang theory and so on, the sun existed before the earth. According to the Bible, birds were created before land animals. Evolution would have us believe that land animals were first and then they evolved into birds. So effectively, the Bible says it was the chicken before the egg. Evolution says, really, it was the egg before the chicken. The Bible account says that there was light before the stars. Evolution would have us believe stars mostly before the light. Bible tells us that the earth was made under the waters. Evolution tells us that earth was originally hot molten rock that then rain pouring on the oceans over millions of years gradually cooled the earth. So many scientific problems from that from a geological perspective. And I could spend hours going into some of these things I'm going to spare you the details, but happy to talk if you want. In the Bible, and I think this is one of the biggest things to me, that we're told everything produces after its kind. Well, uh, evolution tells us there's transitional forms. I was in a debate with an individual recently, and they were again championing, championing the, the evolutionary view, and there's some other people around. And so I thought, right, here's my opportunity. So I delved into the conversation, I said, look, I can prove to you in 30 seconds evolution's nonsense. And they just looked at me. I said, would you allow me to? And I said, w- okay. And I said, alright, we, we could try this this morning, couldn't we? Make sure you're awake. If I were to plant an apple seed in the ground what would I get if it grew? Anybody? Apple tree. Very good. If I were to take the hard century bit of the peach and put that in the ground what would I get? Yeah, very good. What about uh, for what would I expect to get from a tomato plant? Tomatoes. You're very good at this. What would I expect to find on an orange tree? Okay. What would I expect a pregnant sheep to produce. A lamb. Oh, we could go on, oh you get an idea. You see, the Bible says everything produces after its kind. And every one of you got the right answers. You, you, they were the right answers. You're you good. But you see, Darwin says that things produce something other than what they were. Well, the problem is, where does the information come from for that to happen? There is no additional information. You need intelligence to add information. So this conversation, very quickly, this individual was left going um what's the, game over. I said, You cannot give me a single incidence where something has produced something other than itself. And the Bible says everything produces after its kind, which you have just confirmed is what we see. Darwin says things produce other than their kind and there's no evidence. Sorry, evolution's over. It's as simple as that. The Bible speaks about everything being formed, complete, fully formed. Whereas evolution speaks of things gradually needing to develop, as if God couldn't get it right in the first instance. The Bible speaks of things gradually decaying from the time of the fall. Evolution speaks about a gradual improvement, of course, and then we get to the pinnacle, which is supposed to be mankind. The Bible says that man is made in God's image, Effectively, evolution would teach that God has been made in man's image. See, these two are absolutely diametrically opposed. You cannot be a Christian and seriously hold on to an evolutionary position. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and believe in evolution, but if you look at it, it is totally inconsistent with what the Bible says. You have to choose one side or the other. So what's the conclusion? And This is just a conclusion for the first section, so don't get excited, we're not finished yet. Both creation and evolution are belief systems about our origins. And don't let any evolutionist try and fob you off with some nonsense about facts, because they do not have any facts. The government of this country couldn't provide a single fact to me when asked. And they have a whole team of scientists at their disposal. And so the debate is really between the science of one religion, if I may put it that way, Versus the science of the other religions. So it's looking at the things that we can observe and then approaching it from a scientific perspective to draw conclusions. But of course Christianity isn't really a religion. Christianity is a relationship. As we were looking yesterday in our class on apologetics, the whole of our faith is based upon one historical event. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything is dependent upon that one historical event being a real, literal, historical event. What we have is a relationship with a living saviour. It's not just a religion. And by the way, when we actually look at the science, the creation model of this world, this worldview that says that there is a God that's created us, wins hands down. Okay, I want to just quickly just take you through an introduction to the Bible, because I'm indebted to Dr. Chuck Misler, For his comments, and he makes this this statement. He says, we have in our possession an integrated message system. My, My understanding is that most believers, most Christians do not know what the Bible is and, and, and they, they they see it as a book that contains God's words and they trust it and they, they read bits and there's bits they don't understand and they maybe don't think it's irrelevant and some believers think well the Old Testament that's done and dusted we don't need that now so we're kind of New Testament Christians that idea gets put forward and and so on but the Bible is so much more the Bible is an integrated message every part intertwines and interlocks with every other part you see We've got 66 separate books penned by around about 40 different authors written over roughly a couple of thousand years. And Chuck Miserable makes this point, which provably has its origin from outside our time domain. What do we mean by that? Well, quite simply, because in this book, in the account of in Genesis and various other passages we'll be looking at going through the early chapters, we see... God's plan. The things that are dealt with at the end of the book we find spoken of in the beginning. Even though we have this time lag between when they were actually penned. Everything intertwines. And the the end can be seen all through. And the beginning can be seen all through. Everything interlocks. We've got a whole variety of different authors approximately looking at the The books of the Bible there roughly in in kind of chronological order roughly, but you know, we've got politicians, prime ministers, kings, shepherds, fishermen, all sorts of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds, physicians, and yet they write totally harmoniously and in complete agreement with everybody else that has got their name on a book in the Bible. It really is just quite breathtaking as you look at the the detail and the design that we have there. I think it was Augustine that said that in the New Testament is the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Uh, That's a very good and quite simple quote, but it's true. You see, the central theme of the Bible is this? In the Old Testament is all about the account of a nation, the nation of Israel. The New Testament is all about the account of a man that came through that nation. And really the whole basis of the Bible is that the creator himself became a man. His appearance is the central event of all history. He died to purchase us, is alive now. And the most exalted privilege is to know him. And that is really what the Bible is all about. The Bible really is incredible. And we'll talk more about the complexity and design as we go through. I just want to talk a little bit then about this book of Genesis that we're going to go on and study. Firstly, the book of Genesis is part of a five-book set to start with called the Torah. Now the Jews hold this group of books in very high regard. They're referred to as the books of Moses. When I taught this some years ago, we spent ages going through showing the the biblical basis for the fact that Moses is the author. Because there's all sorts of suggestions and theories and and so on. There's a documentary hypothesis which suggests that Moses couldn't have written it and there's at least four or five authors and All totally destroyed by credible scholarship now and actually the Bible itself shows that Moses was the author of these books. Certainly collating the information, the book of Genesis is made up of a number of books that have been collated but certainly Moses is the one that's done that. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy make up then this five book set that the Bible starts with. And each of them has their own place, but they all deal with really the beginning and the foundation of everything else we see in the Bible. Well, the book of Genesis itself really split into two sections. The first section deals with the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, then the fall of man in Genesis 3, onto Cain and Abel. We then get the genealogy of Noah in chapter 5, the flood in chapter 6 through 9, and then the Tower of Babel, the early world as it was. Then the second part of the book is broken down, really looking at four individuals. Abraham, who God calls out of this idol-worshipping Gentile culture. And he says that through him, he's going to bring a saviour into the world that will bless the world. Then we move on and look at Isaac, Jacob, and then finally Joseph. So that's the, the breakdown of the book itself. But as I've said already, Genesis really is the book of beginnings. That's what the name, of course, means. It's that we see the origin of time, space, and matter of life. And by the way, we'll look at this in a subsequent session, but you know that from a biblical definition, that which is alive is that which has blood. Okay, Plants are living, but they're not alive in that sense. That which is alive is that which has blood. Uh, Man and woman, of course, we see the origin of marriage. And of course it's God that establishes marriage. Personal ownership is actually found in Genesis as something that God ordains. Childhood, of course, sin, murder, the Sabbath, and the concept and the idea of the Sabbath, even before we get to the time of the law being given. The idea of sacrifice and that blood is the atonement of the sin. Grace, trade, Agriculture, city life is established, cultures begin to develop, languages, chosen people, God's people, and so on. Genesis also anticipates all false philosophies. The idea of atheism that says no God is dealt with by quite simply the beginning statement which says in the beginning God. And no attempt is made to prove God's existence, none is needed. In fact, Psalm 14 says that only the fool would say in his heart there is no God. In fact, Psalm 14 says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. Not there is no, That's that's been put in just for readability by the translators, which is fine, but really what it's saying is, the fool has said, I don't want to acknowledge God. The idea of pantheism, well, that's dealt with by the fact that God is transcendent, transcendent and distinguishable. There's not a multitude of God, a plethora of God's. Polytheism, again, is dealt with by the fact that there is just one God. Materialism is dealt with by the fact that matter itself had a beginning. Humanism is dealt with by God and not man is the ultimate reality. The whole idea of evolutionism, we've already said, is countered by the fact that God himself created. The idea of uniformism, things have always been the same. Well, God intervenes and continually intervenes in the affairs of man. All major doctrines are found in the Bible. The idea of sovereign election that God himself is the one who is in complete control. He does what he will. The idea of salvation, of course. Justification by faith. The security that believers have. Separation on account of our sin from God. Disciplinary chastisement that God is a God of love and if he loves us, he will chastise us if we go astray. The divine incarnation, the fact that God would come in the person of Jesus. The rapture of the church actually is seen in type, in the book of Genesis, on a couple of occasions. Death and resurrection, clearly, we see. The idea of a priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, and also much priesthood, we'll look at that. And the idea of the Antichrist, you see a forerunner to Antichrist in Genesis 14. The Palestinian covenant that is so much debated on the news today. All of these ideas are seen in the book of Genesis. Now, a little while ago, we went through looking at Revelation, And I want to just show you that the two ends, as it were, of the Bible. And see the the incredible design that we see here. Firstly, in Genesis, earth is created. In Revelation, earth passes away. In Genesis, the sun is given to govern the day. But in Revelation, there's no need of the sun. In Genesis, darkness is called night. In Revelation, there will be no night there. In Genesis, the waters are called seas. In Revelation, there will be no more sea. In Genesis, there was a river for earth's blessing. In Revelation, there will be a new river for the new earth. In Genesis, we see earth's government established, particularly regarding Israel. And then, in Revelation, we see the governments of the earth judged again in regard to Israel. In In Genesis, man is created in God's image. In Revelation, man... It's effectively headed by Satan's image and this horrible twist with Antichrist coming onto the scene. In Genesis, we see the entrance of sin. In Revelation, we see the end of sin. Praise God for that. In Genesis, the curse is pronounced. In Revelation, there will be no more curse. In Genesis, death entered. In Revelation, there will be no more death. In Genesis, man was driven out of Eden. In Revelation, man is restored to that walk with God. Just this beautiful picture that the walk with God will be what God always intended it to be. In Genesis, the tree of life is guarded, but in Revelation, everyone has access to this tree of life. In Genesis, there's sorrow and suffering. They enter into the world. In Revelation, there'll be no more sorrow or tears or pain or crying. In Genesis, Nimrod founded Babylon. In Revelation, Babylon falls. In Genesis, we see God send a flood to destroy The evil generation. In Revelation, Satan's flood is sent to try and destroy God's elect. He fails, of course. In Genesis, there's a bow given of God's promise. In Revelation, there's another bow, which is also another covenant, another promise given, and a remembrance. In Genesis, we have Solomon, Egypt, and corruption, and judgment, and so on. But in Revelation... We find that Solomon Egypt, speaking of the, of Jerusalem, also are brought into judgment. In Genesis, there's a confederation that end up taking Lot away captive and Abraham has to intervene. In Revelation, there's another confederation that comes against Abraham's seed. In Genesis, we find a bride for Abraham's son. In Revelation, there's a bride for Abraham's seed. In Genesis, we can see the marriage of the first Adam. Of course, in Revelation, as we were looking last week, there's the marriage of the last Adam. In Genesis, man's dominion ceased and Satan's began. But in Revelation, Satan's dominion ended and man's will be restored with a man, Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne. It's incredible, you look at the, the contrasts and you see what we have. Now, looking at a panorama of the Bible, it's interesting just to know that Genesis takes up such a huge portion of history, in that sense. It goes from the creation of the world to the time of the Exodus. So, in biblical chronology, we're looking from around about 6,000 BC up to somewhere around about 14, 1500 BC. And then we have the rest of the Old Testament squeezed into a relatively short time span. And of course, the New Testament itself is over just a a very short period of time. And then we have that little period of 400 years or so in between, which is actually all detailed in the book of Daniel anyway. But it's incredible when you look how much of history is recorded in the book of Genesis. In Psalm 11, verse 3, it says that if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, it's it's a telling kind of statement and kind of question because if you take away the foundations things crumble and people have repeatedly tried to undermine the book of genesis and question its credibility even sadly as i mentioned earlier prominent christians that for some reason seem to think we can't trust what we have in genesis look if you can believe that god created and did it all according, as he says in Genesis, nothing else is a problem. Because look, if God is God, why can't God do that? But people struggle with these things. There was a, a poll taken in America. that was commissioned by Answers in Genesis. Uh, it was actually a follow-up to a, a Barna poll that had been done. Uh, this goes back some years ago. But um, the poll showed that many had left the church because they no longer believe the Bible is the absolute word of God. You see, the problem is, if the Bible is not entirely trustworthy, what is your foundation? What is your basis for determining what is right and what is wrong? Ultimately, it becomes your opinion. And I ain't going to trust your opinion, because I don't even want to trust my opinion. You see, either the Bible really is God's word, from cover to cover, or we might as well look elsewhere. Sadly, another survey that was done revealed a really concerning and telling problem that exists this was a a survey that was done looking at protestant clergy, and again this was done in America but I've got no reason to doubt it's any different in this country there was actually 7,441 ministers that were uh, asked these questions and this is the percentage of those that said no to the following questions by denomination, so question, do you accept Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact, bear in mind Paul says that is the basis of our belief 51% 51% of Methodist ministers said they did not. 35% of Episcopalian did not. 33% of American Baptists didn't. And 30% of Presbyterian and 12, 13% of American Lutheran ministers all denied the resurrection being a physical fact. We, according to Paul then, of all men, are most miserable. If the resurrection didn't take place, we really can just back up and go home. That is the foundation, the basis. And the evidence is overwhelming, by the way. The other question was asked, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? A kind of important question. Well, you can see 60%, 49%, 44 34 and 19 all said no in those various denominations. Didn't believe that the virgin birth was a real event. And then the big question, do you believe the scriptures are the inerrant work of God in faith, history, and secular matters? Sadly, 95% of Episcopalian ministers said that they didn't believe it was. Well, what are they doing? What do they teach? What basis do they have for standing up every Sunday morning and teaching congregations? How do they know what is right and what is wrong? Who decides? See, it's either all right, it's either all God's Word. Or we, we just give up. 87% of Methodist ministers. And by the way, I would expect, this was some years ago, I'd expect these figures are possibly even higher now. 82% of Presbyterian and 70%, 77% of American Lutheran. And 67% of American Baptists all denied that the Bible was the inerrant word of God. That's so sad. And you know, a lot of that becomes... It's kind of the evolution problem again because people believe in evolution because they were taught in evolution. So they teach evolution to the next generation who believe in evolution because they were taught evolution. Do you see where we're going? There's the same thing where people are told, well, we can't trust the Bible and they were taught it. So in, in Bible cemetery, sorry, seminaries, i get those two mixed up, uh, although there's not a lot of difference. Um, and, and people end up doubting what the Bible says because they've been told they should doubt what the Bible says. So they then pass on to other people that we can doubt what the Bible... And people never actually go, well, what does the Bible say? Let's take a look, shall we? And when we look at the Bible, it is beautiful. It's incredible. And as we will see as we go on this journey through Genesis, it is breathtaking. And we see God's fingerprints and God's design. This is not the product of man's intelligence. This has come from God. And by the way, Psalm 119, remember we studied that a little while ago? Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. We we have a copy. The original's already been written, it's in heaven. So let's just just tie off now, just have a very quick look at some observational comments we can make at the very first verse of the Bible itself. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What a a bold statement. First of all, we've got the origin of time there, the beginning. God says there was a beginning. And also space, because heaven. And then matter, the earth. You see, you couldn't create matter without creating space and time. You need all of these things to exist at once. And the opening sentence of the Bible, from a scientific perspective, is absolutely right. We have our reality comprises of time, space and matter. And by the way, That makes up, of course, our universe. Universe is made of two words. Uni meaning single, and verse meaning a spoken sentence. Universe means a single spoken sentence. May I suggest that single spoken sentence is, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's a good place to start. Again, the beginning. It was one of the greatest discoveries of the the 20th century that cosmologists and scientists alike, they realized that the universe really did have a beginning, it hasn't been there forever. I'm not going to go through all the science stuff, but we've got the first law of thermodynamics that says that matter cannot be created or destroyed. Now that does pose a problem to atheists, to the secularists, people that reject the Bible. How do we get matter? But the second law basically says that everything tends towards disorder. Things are winding down. Ladies, you may have had that bad hair day experience. Things don't start at the the end of the day as they were at the start of the day. Gentlemen, you've maybe looked in your garage at some time and seen it's not as tidy as you left it. For some reason, things go from order to disorder. And the Bible is replete with verses on this subject. Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure... Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. I've got many verses, I'm just going to just jump on, because the Bible makes it very clear that the world is winding down. Things are getting worse. I just want to throw this in there, because again the Bible says that there's a beginning. Scientists understand, and even we can appreciate this, if you had a, a lump of coal and you put it into a bath, after a short while, everything would be the same temperature. The Added heat that the coal had would then be reduced and maybe the water would warm up slightly. Heat always flows from hot bodies to cold bodies. If the universe was therefore infinitely old, the temperature throughout the universe would be uniform. But it's not. So therefore, we know it's not infinitely old. And therefore it had a beginning. It's very simple. And it's also, by the way, destined for an ending. The universe cannot carry on forever, which is another thing the Bible makes very clear. Now, notice again the Bible says, "In the beginning, God." Now, this is just very simple as well, because if there was a time when there was no thing, because matter and energy, we have this issue with them, and obviously, matter, uh, so energy is is running down. The second law of thermodynamics. There has to be a time when there was no thing. Now, if that's the case, the cause of everything had to be someone, as someone who is outside of time. And the Bible says. Thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. The Bible says God is outside of time. He's outside of his creation. Okay, just to finish this morning, I just want to share this with you. And again, you start to see the fingerprints of God from the very first verse of the Bible. And by the way, there have been books written just about this verse and the complexity. The number of letters equals 28 in the the Hebrew alphabet which is a multiple of seven, and there's all sorts of studies you can do going off down that road. But just for now, looking at the Hebrew, we've got the words there, Bereshit, which is in the beginning. Bara, created out of nothing. That's what God did. Uh, by the way, there's two other words. There's an asa, which means to make, and uh, a fashion, and so on. And yatsa, which means to form. But the word that's used here is to create out of nothing. Elohim, that's the name of God. It's a plural noun. This is interesting because in essence it's saying, not it is really saying the gods, but not talking about a plurality of gods, but talking of God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit. All here in that very first verse of the Bible. Because it's used as a singular. Now, you'll notice, if you look at these words that we've got there, we have this Bereshit, Barah Elohim, and the verse, verse goes on. In the middle of the verse, there are two letters that are not translated. This is wonderful. Because I don't know if you know Hebrew at all, if you know Hebrew letters. But if you do, you'll notice that the two letters we have there are an Aleph, which will be equivalent to our A, and a a Tau, which is equivalent to the last letter in the alphabet, which would be like our Z. If we were to read this literally, it would be, because these words are not translated, they're not actually in the the text that's, that's translated, it would be, in the beginning, God, the A and the Z, or if I could put that into Greek for you, the Alpha and Omega, created the heavens and the earth. Now that appears a number of times in the Bible, and I'll show you some others as we go through. But that is in the very first verse of the Bible. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. In John 1, 1 1-3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things, notice this, were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians says, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That that word literally means held together. And it's interesting because if you look at an atom, I'm not sure whether you remember from science, from school, but in the center of an atom, you've got neutrons and protons. Flying around the outside, you've got the electrons. But those neutrons and the protons, they should fly apart. Like charges repel. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And yet, they don't. They're held together. Scientists, you know, do you know what they they talk about? Atomic glue. Seriously, that's a a concept that's put forward. We don't understand it, we don't know how, but the fact that they are held together, there must be something holding them together, so we've invented this thing called atomic glue. I I prefer to go with what Paul says in Colossians and says, that it's Jesus that is holding all things together. And there's going to come a time when he's going to allow all things to fly apart as well. Peter speaks about that. By the way, that is the Big Bang, but it's not at the beginning, it's at the end. So, to conclude for this morning, in John 5.39, Jesus says, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And from the very first page of the Bible, the very first verse of the Bible, it testifies of Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who has created all things. And that is what this book, not just Genesis, but the whole of the Bible, is all about. Let's hearts. Father, thank you for this incredible book and the privilege that we have of being able to start a journey through. We just ask for your blessing. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our ears and our understanding, that we can comprehend the things that you would have us learn, that they would, Lord, enrich and strengthen us. That, Lord, we would be encouraged. That we would be, as Peter says we should be, Lord, ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. Because, Lord, we need not be afraid of man. Because man may make a lot of noise, but has nothing. We have the living God. We have your word. So, Lord, give us that confidence and that boldness to live our lives for you, to stand on your word, and, Lord, just to enjoy being yours we just thank you for this time this morning bless us as we go from here we ask in Jesus name Amen